Now here in chapter 18, <coughs> the old writers address the issue of assurance. And I've outlined it this way, since they don't provide an outline. There are various ways this could be outlined as well. I outline it this way. Paragraph 1, they speak about the possibility of assurance. And they're contrasting themselves with the medieval idea that characterized the medieval church, that it was impossible to know whether you were going to go to heaven when you died. And keeping that lack of assurance before the people was a way of manipulating them out of their money. Then, so they address that. Secondly, in paragraph two, they open up either the nature or distinguishing features of assurance. In paragraph three, they talk about the attainment of assurance. How do you get assurance? And in paragraph four, they talk about the loss of assurance, how it's possible for Christians to lose their assurance of salvation in paragraph four. So they talk about the possibility, nature or features, attainment, and loss of assurance. First of all, the possibility of assurance. And they contrast the possibility of true assurance with the possibility of presumption or false assurance. And they say this, Although temporary believers and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and in a state of salvation, which hope of theirs will perish. Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may, in this life, be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. So you start out with the possibility of self-deception, false assurance, presumption. Those that are temporary believers, or what is commonly called an apostate, someone who for a while makes a profession of Christianity and then falls away and goes back into the world. Other unregenerate men, hypocrites, People who have a nominal in name only religion, who don't really know the Lord, who live a wicked life while they profess to be religious. Other unregenerate men. Such people can vainly, that is without profit, deceive themselves with false hope and carnal presumption that they are in the favor of God and that they're in a state of salvation, but their hope will not last, it will not stand the test of judgment it will be destroyed. Uh, they cite Matthew 7, among other passages, 
They cite Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy by your name and by your name cast out demons and by your name do many mighty works? And then I will say or profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. And then on that foundation and contrast, they open up the possibility of assurance, which is a certain confidence that you are saved. Certain confidence that you're in a state of grace. And they speak about the possibility and occasion, uh, uh, sorry, the, the receivers and occasion and substance and fruit and outcome of this assurance which is possible. Who, uh, who can possibly have assurance? True believers with a good conscience, such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, not in hypocrisy. And endeavor trying to walk in all good conscience. So the ones that can attain assurance are those that are truly saved and living with a good conscience. And the occasion of true assurance, gospel assurance, is may in this life. It's possible in this life to know that you're saved. It's possible for a true believer with a, walking with a good conscience in this life to know that he certainly, certainly know that he's saved. And that's the essential substance of this assurance. To be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace and the present fruit and may rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's possible for a true believer in this life not only to have confidence that is certain that they're in a state of grace, but also to have the emotional fruit of that confidence, which is rejoicing and joy. Joy about what? Joy and hope of the glory of God. I know that I'm saved and I have joy in my heart because I'm expecting to be with God forever in glory. And the ultimate outcome of that assurance is that they will not be put to shame, which hope will never make a shame. Now, how do they support this? They say in 1 John 2, 3, Hereby we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. And 1 John 3, 14, 18, and 19, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. My little children, let us not live in word, neither with the tongue, but in deed and in truth. By this we will know that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. Now, th that couldn't be true if it were impossible to know if you were saved or not. And again, 1 John 3, 21 and 24, Beloved, if our heart condemns us, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. He that keeps his commandments abides in him, and hereby we know that he abides in us by the spirit that he gives us. And 1 John 5, 13, These things have I written to you, 
that you may know that you have eternal life even to you that believe in the name of the Son of God. And they also appeal to Romans 5, 5. And this hope does not make us ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given to us. So they appeal to passages which plainly assert the possibility of genuine believers knowing for certain that they're in a state of grace and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God and that hope of the glory of God not making them ashamed on the last day when they stand before God and the judgment seat of Christ. Which brings me then secondly to paragraph two, the distinguishing features of this assurance. They talk about its nature and then its ground and its fruit. First of all, its nature. This certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith. It is supernatural. It is produced by God. They appeal to Hebrews 6, 11 and 19. And we desire that each of you may show the same diligence unto the fullness of hope, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, that it's God-produced, and therefore infallible confidence. And what is it grounded upon? It is founded on what? First, on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. Second, and also upon the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit unto which promises are made. And third, and on the testimony of the Spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. And finally, they speak about the moral fruit of this assurance and as a fruit thereof, keeping the heart both humble and holy. So let's look at the solid ground. They talk about the objective ground, which is the work of Christ, the subjective ground, which is the graces of the Christian life, and the experiential ground, which is the testimony of the indwelling Holy Spirit founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. And it's interesting that they appeal to Hebrews 6.18, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have a strong encouragement to have fled to lay refuge of the hope set before us. And I thought, when I was first reading this years ago, how does that verse fit with what this says. And then I went and checked this out and I discovered that this statement founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ was not in the Westminster Confession. 
the Westminster Assembly wrote this for the first ground. Founded on the divine truth of the promises of salvation. And to support that, they quoted Hebrews 6.18. Oh, that made sense to me. Oh, I understand. Founded on the divine truth of the promises of salvation, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, the promise of salvation confirmed with an oath, we may have a strong encouragement. So that our assurance is rest on the promise it rests is grounded on the promises of God and salvation. Oh, then it made sense. So where did this statement come from? It actually comes from the Savoy Declaration. And our Baptist fathers, for some reason, John Owen and the Independents, when they wrote the Savoy Declaration, changed the Westminster Confession from founded on the divine truth of the promises of salvation. They changed that to founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. And our Baptist forefathers copied this from John Owen and the Independence and the Savoy Declaration. Then it made sense. <coughs> so, well, is this right? I mean, that, all right, so much for history as best I can understand it. But <coughs> because it just struck me, why would they appeal to Hebrews 6 to prove that? In any event, both things are true. The Westminster Confession is right. It's founded on the promises of God. And Savoy Declaration and the London Confession are right. It's founded on Christ's righteousness and blood. How do I know that I'm going to heaven? Because Christ died for me. And the text that I would appeal to to prove that would not be from Hebrews 6. It would be from Romans 8. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? If Christ died for me, I, I can never be damned. He paid it all. That's my confidence. My confidence that I'm going to go to heaven when I die rests on the reality of Christ accomplishing redemption for me in the shedding of his blood. That's the foundation of my hope. And that's what our confession is saying, and that's what John Owen is saying. And I think a text like Romans 8 supports that very clearly and explicitly. The subjective ground is the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit to which the promises are made. And of course, that, that's very clear in a passage like 1 John 3, 18 and 19, a passage that they've already cited. It says, my little children, let us not love in word, neither with the tongue, that is not only in word and with the tongue, but in deed and, truth, and in truth. Hereby we will know that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And 1 John 2, 3, hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So how do we know? Because we see, we discern the evidence of a godly life by examining ourselves and seeing I, I'm not the man I was. I'm not everything I should be, but I'm not what I used to be either. And I see evidence in my life of a transformed life. And by this we will know 
that we were of the truth and will assure our hearts before him. And these things are produced by the Holy Spirit, these graces. That's the subjective ground, the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit unto which promises are made. And finally, the mysterious experiential ground, the Holy Spirit. The testimony of the Spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. Romans 8, 15 and 16 opens up this mystery. Affirms it anyway. For you receive not the spirit of bondage, but you receive the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So they make reference to that as well. So you have the experiential ground, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, the subjective ground, the inward evidence of grace, and the objective ground, the person and work of Christ, Christ's work of redemption. And then finally, the moral fruit, humility and holiness, and as a fruit thereof, keeping the heart both humble and holy. 1 John 3, 3, And everyone that has his hope set on him purifies himself even as he is pure. Hope confidence of future blessing produces holiness. So that's the nature of genuine or gospel assurance. So you have the possibility of assurance, the nature or distinguishing features of assurance. Thirdly, the attainment of assurance. How do believers come to attain this assurance of salvation? This infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and struggle with many difficulties before he be partaker of it. Yet, being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of means, attain thereunto. So first of all, they speak about the way of attaining assurance. Then, with these words, and therefore, they move to a second aspect of the attainment of the assurance, and that is the responsibility of attaining assurance. And therefore, it is the duty of everyone to give diligence to make his calling and election sure. And then they move to a third aspect of attaining assurance that thereby his heart may be enlarged, etc. They talk about the benefits of attaining assurance. So you have the way of attaining assurance, the responsibility of attaining assurance, and the benefits of attaining assurance. First of all, the way of attaining assurance, the manner or way. First of all, attaining assurance can be a difficult process that grows out of genuine faith. 
This infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it. They appeal to Isaiah 50.10. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light, Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. The cause of attaining assurance is the Holy Spirit, yet being enabled by the Spirit to know the things freely given to him of God. They appeal to 1 John 4.13. Hereby we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. And the means of attaining assurance, the ordinary means of grace. He may, without extraordinary revelation, you don't need a direct revelation from God saying, you are my child. You don't need direct revelation. You can attain assurance using the right, rightly using the ordinary means of grace. And again, they appeal to 1 John 5.13. These things have I written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. You don't have to have God speak to you in a vision or a dream or a direct revelation from heaven telling you that you're a Christian. These things I've written to you that you may know. The ordinary means of grace is the way of attaining assurance. And that brings then to the possibility, um, no, sorry, responsibility of attaining assurance. Therefore, it's the duty of everyone. He appealed to 2 Peter 1, verse 10 and 11. Wherefore, my brethren, give the more diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you'll never stumble. For in this way will be richly supplied to you the entrance to eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they enumerate some of the great benefits of attaining assurance peace and joy in the Holy Spirit that his heart may be enlarged in the peace and joy of the Holy Spirit love and thankfulness to God in love that his heart may be enlarged in love and thankfulness to God strength and cheerfulness in gospel obedience that his heart may be enlarged in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, so far is it from inclining men to looseness. Peace and joy, love and thankfulness, strength and cheerfulness in gospel living. These are the benefits of assurance of salvation. And then finally, they address the issue of the loss of assurance the loss of assurance, that it is possible for a genuine believer for a time to lose assurance to some degree. Not to lose the grace of hope. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways, shaken, diminished, and intermitted as by 
negligence in preserving of it by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit by some sudden or vehement temptation by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and have no light. So they talk about the possibility of the loss of assurance. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted. As David prays in Psalm 51, 11, and 12, cast me not away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with your free spirit. And then they enumerate the reasons as by negligence in preserving of it. Negligence in the means of grace. Neglecting Bible reading and prayer and neglecting going to church. Gross sin by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit. Severe temptation by some sudden or vehement temptation. Divine withdrawing. Sometimes you can't say that a Christian's been negligent or fallen into gross sin or some great temptation, but there's no other explanation except that God simply withdrew for a time. By God's withdrawing the light of his countenance, and suffering even such as fear him to walk in the darkness and have no light. And again, twice they appealed to they appealed to it before. Now again they appeal to Isaiah 50 and verse 10. But they say, it's possible to lose assurance to some degree. There are reasons for it. Sometimes it's inexplicable. But there are limits. It only goes so far. And here are the limits. At the end of the paragraph. Yet they are never destitute of the seed of God and life of faith. That love of Christ and the brethren. That sincerity of heart and conscience of duty. Out of which... By the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived. And by the which in the meantime they are preserved from utter despair. So there are limits. Believers can never lose the spiritual roots of assurance, regeneration, faith, love, sincerity, conscientiousness. They are never destitute of the seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty. 1 John 3, 9. He that is born of God cannot sin because his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. So there are limits. He can't become unregenerate. That's never going to happen. And he can never lose assurance irrevocably. Out of which, because of this genuine 
religion that remains in him because of he's genuinely regenerate and the Holy Spirit dwells in him out of which by the operation of the Spirit this assurance may in due time be revived. And finally it has limits as to its extent. They can never lose Christian hope totally and absolutely. There's no such thing as a believer who has no hope. And they don't appeal to the text, but the text I would appeal to is in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following, where we say, where Paul says, that you sorrow not, even as the rest, who have no hope. They have no hope. Christians are not without hope. Christians have hope. And now abide these three, faith, hope, and love. All Christians have faith, all Christians have hope, and all Christians have love. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have hope. Assurance is not so of the essence of faith that a Christian can't struggle with it. But assurance is so of the essence of hope that a Christian can never be without hope, even though he struggles with assurance. You can't lose the grace of hope or faith or love. Those things never are lost. But a person's hope can get smaller to the point where he actually struggles with assurance. But he never completely is devoid of hope. And that's what they're saying. And by the which in the meantime they are preserved from utter despair. Utter despair is the complete absence of hope. Christians never are without hope completely. They're never given over to utter despair because they have hope always, even when they struggle with assurance. So that's what the confession says as best I can outline and explain it. It talks about the possibility, the nature or features, the attainment and the loss of assurance. Questions or comments on chapter 18?